As America prepares to inaugurate a new president, it can be useful to look back at what past history can teach us here in the present. Today, I'm joined by Judge Alberto R. Gonzalez, the former White House counsel and attorney general under George W. Bush, who has written a memoir about his time in the office. And his memoir is called True Faith and Allegiance, A Story of Service and Sacrifice in War and Peace. Judge Gonzalez, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, and and I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk about this book. I'd like to start off with the book. What were your reasons for wanting to write this memoir? Some people probably would have just shut the door and thought, oh, you know what? I'm not going to even try and engage any critics or participate in any discussions. What drove you to want to present your case to the public? Well, there were a couple of reasons. Uh, One, I had my own unique perspective on many of the most difficult and controversial issues that we dealt with during the Bishop administration, most of those dealing, of course, with the war on terrorism. And uh, I felt it important to add my perspective to a lot of other perspectives that are out there. I think it's uh, a very important component of history, and hopefully it'll help people understand uh, what we did and the reasons for what we did. But I also wrote the book for my sons. Uh, There's been a lot written about my service, much of it not true and inaccurate. Some of it is true, and really I wanted to to tell the story for my son so they would understand what their dad was involved in and the reasons for some of the decisions that that I made during my service. You and your family made quite a few sacrifices on the road to the White House and while you were serving for the Bush administration, and this book really gave me more of an insight into that. Could you describe what it was like both for your immediate family and for your larger family, your your mother, your siblings, for this really historic position of being the first Hispanic White House counsel? Well, I think it's fair to say there's a great deal of pride, uh, maybe perhaps a little wonder about the fact that someone that with my background could become the Attorney General of the United States, and that really is the American story. Uh, With respect to my family, also a great deal of pride. You know, we had wonderful opportunities that very few Americans get to enjoy by my service in the White House and at Justice, you know, talking about weekends at Camp David and rides aboard Air Force One, participating in the Easter egg hunt every year on the White House lawn, Fourth of July fireworks from the Truman Balcony. So it is fair to say that um, we had some incredible privileges during my service, but undoubtedly, we also had some very difficult times. It's, um, particularly as the Attorney General, you're involved in the most difficult and controversial decisions that any administration has to confront. Uh, and oftentimes there are winners and losers based upon the decisions made by the Attorney General. And people get upset. They don't, sometimes they don't like some of the decisions that are made. And there is criticism, and, and uh, there was some criticism in connection with my service. And And while I focused on my job and didn't read a word of it, my wife read every word of it. And so for her, it was extremely difficult. And that has made it uh, somewhat difficult for me to really enjoy and honor my service afterwards because of her feelings about some of the things that happened and some of the things that were said about me, which she felt were unfair. But uh, having said that, no one promised us that we would be treated fairly in Washington and no one should ever go to Washington thinking they're going to be treated fairly because it's just not going to happen. When I talk to young students around the country about my service, I always talk about the value, the importance of stepping into the arena of public service and serving our country. But to do so with your eyes open and your armor on, because it can be very difficult at times. 
and yet I would do it again in a second because it was so rewarding. I feel like I've lived a life of consequence because of my service, and I would, again, as I said, I would do it again in a second. Now, as you and I are speaking, and for our listeners, this is January 11th, Senator Jeff Sessions is undergoing confirmation hearings for the position of U.S. Attorney General. You have actually been through this process. What insights can you give us as laypeople as to what that experience is like? Well, you spend a great deal of time preparing for it. At least you should. I mean, that's that's the prudent thing to do. And I, I, for me, I wasn't asked a single question in my confirmation hearing that I had not anticipated, that we had not worked on an answer for. So you spend a lot of time reading briefing books uh, about the work of the department, about the issues confronting of America, and you work on answers, and you have several mock hearings, um, several of them, and most of that work occurs at the White House and at the Department of Justice. And so that when the hearing does occur, you know, you anticipate the kind of questions you're going to get. You're given instruction about how you should sit, how you should answer questions when you're not sure of the answers, how you can defer and deflect certain controversial questions. And so there's a great deal of preparation that goes into this. I had the advantage that I think Senator Sessions has the advantage in that many of the senators that were on the Judiciary Committee, I had worked with during my four years as White House counsel. I'd gone to their offices to talk to them about judicial appointments. So we knew each other. And the same thing is true with Senator Sessions, of course, members of the Judiciary Committee, and that's the committee that he has served on. They know him. My own perspective is is that uh, most of the senators, if not all, already know how they're going to vote with respect to uh, Jeff Sessions because they know him. I don't know whether or not you know the Democrats will support him. What I will say this, is this, that with respect to my nomination, the vote in the Judiciary Committee was on a party line vote. All the Democrats voted against me. I will say that, that before the vote, several of them called me in advance to tell me they weren't going to vote for me because they felt I was too close to President Bush, but they knew I was going to be confirmed, and they looked forward to working with me. And so it was a very collegial, uh, and you know, and I understood. I understood why they had they had to do what they felt they had to do. And I suspect, with respect to Jeff Sessions, uh, those Democrats who are not going to support him are going to call him and let him know in advance. And I think he's going to be confirmed. And I think they'll they're going to tell him that they look forward to working with him. And you know, it really is a good thing because the truth of the matter is, our country has so many problems and issues that have to be addressed. And we need to have the executive branch, we need to have the attorney general have a good relationship with members of Congress and be able to work with Congress, no matter their differences on policies. And I think we're going to have that here in this particular case. You mentioned collegiality, and I have to say that as a Washington outsider, that's not something that I see portrayed in the media very much. Do you believe that we as American citizens have kind of a distorted view of how much acrimony there is, or do you think that that's at least to some extent, accurate? Well, I think to some extent it is accurate. You know, campaigns uh, are about winning and losing, and so there are things that are said you might not normally say. So I discount some of the stuff that's always said during the campaign uh, by candidates. I really do, because it is political. But once you assume power and you take your oath of office and you understand you have a job doing behalf of the American people, now, because of differences in policies and differences in personalities, there's always going to be tension. There's no question about that. But I, I, I'm hopeful, uh, and I think this is probably proven to be true, that there will be greater cooperation in terms of working for the American people. Now, of course, there are going to be differences, and perhaps over time we're going to see you know, continued gridlock. 
I try to remind my audiences around the country is that we also need to be mindful of the fact that the framers intended, I think, for the federal government to have sort of limited role in the administration of our lives. You know, I think the framers intended that um, the federal government would have limited authority to do things, that most of the power would be left with the states and local governments. And so I think perhaps people have an unrealistic view today about what our federal government should be doing. And sometimes having the federal government be gridlocked and not be able to do stuff is, is not necessarily a bad thing. Now, there are certain things, of course, like immigration reform that are clearly a federal function that they do need to focus on. They need to make progress with respect to immigration reform and get that done. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic. Uh, I, I'm, I'm optimistic by nature that uh, good people will step up and uh, do the work on behalf of the American people. Let's talk a little bit about immigration law. You mentioned in the book that this was one of President Bush's really highest priorities, was trying to fix the immigration system. And I think it's fair to say that President Obama also had that goal in mind, and it it does seem to be a difficult issue to tackle. I'm a third-generation American, and you are a second-generation American. So, you know, we we all were immigrants once. What would you like the modern-day immigration system to look like? Do you have any ideas about how ideally we could structure our immigration system to be open and fair and also safe and secure? Well, you know, I wrote a book that came out in 2014 called A Conservative Compassionate Approach to Immigration Reform that outlines some of the things that I think uh, would make good policy. You know, from my perspective, as you indicated, you know, we are a nation of immigrants, but we're also a nation of laws. And I worry that when so many people continue to violate the law with impunity, that just breeds further disrespect for the law. And I, that's not the America that I grew up in. It's certainly not the America that I try to defend in the military and also later on in my service uh, in Austin and in Washington, D.C. I firmly believe this is a, a federal function and it requires a comprehensive solution, one that uh, cannot be undone by the next president, which is one of the problems with dealing with this piecemeal through executive orders. And I think the Congress needs to step up and put aside their differences and everyone has to compromise. No one's going to get everything they want. Uh, everyone's going to have to give. And I think we need a policy that, that does have a you know, sufficient level of border security because in a post-9-11 world, um, it's a very dangerous time, and we need to know who's in this country and why. So border security is going to be very important. We need to have tougher workplace enforcement, really penalize those employers who are repeat offenders and uh, are hiring people they shouldn't, be, they shouldn't be hiring. We need to somehow identify those, those of within the 12 or 13 million that are here uh, illegally those who have skills and uh, don't have a criminal record, I think we put them to some kind of temporary work status. I don't think it makes sense to deport 11 or 12 million people at one time. First of all, we can't do it. And secondly, it would devastate certain industries. And so I think we need to find those that can uh, provide the service to the American people and they can remain, under, but they have to be in some kind of legal status, temporary or otherwise. They have to be in legal status. And I think that um, we need to revise our visa process. I think up to half the people that are here unlawfully came here lawfully uh, through a work visa or student visa. And they expired, and they now have gone underground. They stay in this country uh, unlawfully. And so we need to somehow figure out a way to stop that from happening going forward. I'm very sympathetic to the children of those brought here by their parents. These children are not American citizens, but they came here through no fault of their own. 
Many of them are very good and go to college. Some serve in the military, try to serve in the military. And I think for those people, we need to find a way to allow them to stay here without fear of deportation and uh, perhaps a pathway to citizenship. I mean, these are the kind of people, quite frankly, we'd all want to have as our fellow citizens. So these are just some ideas. Uh, it just seems to me that if we have the right policy, it's going to help our national security. It's going to help our economy. And that's just good policy as far as I'm concerned for the United States of America and its people. Now, you brought up 9-11 and national security. And naturally, since you were serving in the Bush administration from January of 2001 until September of 2007, that unexpectedly, I imagine, ended up taking most of your time, it seems like, according to the book. What, looking back, do you think were the right moves made towards national security? And what moves, again, this is 2020 hindsight vision, do you really think should have been reconsidered? Or do you <laughs> don't think, over long term, have been effective? Well, you know, throughout our history, we, we see instances, depending on the circumstances, where you see the pendulum of, of action swing away from liberty and more towards security. And we've seen it happen time and time again. We saw it happen after Pearl Harbor, for example. And so the fact that after the attacks of 9-11 that we see the government take a very muscular view of security and the American people accepting that and the Congress accepting that is not surprising whatsoever. I think one of the great decisions that was made immediately was the uh, the declaration that we were at war. You know, uh, President Bush, when he returned to the White House that evening and uh, there was a group of us that met with him in uh, his small private dining room behind the Oval Office uh, that evening on 9-11, he knew immediately we were at war. He called it for what it was. And by that, he intended that we, wouldn't, we weren't going to call this a crime and just use the FBI to collect evidence and read people their Miranda rights and bring them to court and our, our federal courts. We were going to use our military. We were going to use our intelligence capabilities. We were going to apply our economic might. Uh, we were going to rely upon our intelligence and uh, work with our allies to collect information and bring people to justice. And then, of course, we were going to use our military and fight this enemy. We were going to hold them accountable for what they had done to us. Really, it was a lesson in leadership as far as I was concerned. And watching President Bush, he knew immediately what to call this, which is for what it was. And this was a, an attack, uh, you know, use of force. We were at war against terrorism. And so that was a very wise decision and, and obviously affected many of the decisions that were made subsequent to that in terms of how we were going to fight this war against this kind of enemy. And it raised some very difficult issues for us, and the lawyers in particular, because we had never fought this kind of war before. This was a new kind of enemy fighting a new kind of war. It required new kinds of strategies by the U.S. government. And collection of information became a priority. Very, very important to know about the next attack, because as far as President Bush was concerned, the number one priority was no longer the prosecution of bad guys. It was the prevention of further attacks. And so if we had to sacrifice the prosecution of a bad guy in order to get information to prevent another loss of life, then that was going to be okay. And so that required a change in mindset of thinking within our law enforcement agencies, but I think it was the absolute right thing to do. Now, obviously, we engaged in several controversial steps uh, to collect information to fight the enemy, and we can have a discussion at a later time about the merits of some of those. But we did the very best we could as lawyers, again, myself working in the White House and working with lawyers, the general counsels, 
at all the other agencies and working with the Attorney General John Ashcroft and the lawyers at the Department of Justice, we worked very, very hard to ensure that we provided the best legal advice we could as to whether or not a particular method of collecting information or fighting the enemy was in fact lawful, was it consistent with the statutes, was it consistent with the Constitution. So it was, um, I would tell you, it was hard. And did we make some mistakes? Yes, of course you make mistakes. But we did the very best we could in providing legal advice to the policymakers so that they could successfully wage war against this new kind of enemy. And what I will say for our listeners is I found the book very useful on those grounds, because I, on a personal level, disagree with many of the conclusions that you came to, many of the steps that were taken, but it was extremely useful to me to get straight from someone who was involved with it, a perspective on what you were thinking, the steps that you were taking to look at the various bits of evidence and come to legal conclusions. That was extremely useful to me as a reader, even if ultimately, you know, in the dream imaginary world where I was somehow involved, I would have made different decisions. You know, that's, of course, an impossible scenario to play out. But I really did appreciate getting that glimpse into, oh, okay, so this is what you were thinking at the time and some of the reasoning behind the decisions that were made. Do you feel like You know, there have been many autobiographies and memoirs that came out. Are there any you could recommend to our readers that you found particularly valuable in looking back at this time or hearing from these different voices, books that you would recommend? Honestly, I have not read another book about this particular period of history in America. And I made that decision uh, consciously because I knew I was going to write a book, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> and uh, I didn't want to be influenced one way or the other. I'm very careful. I say at the outset of my book that this uh, this reflects my perspective on some controversial issues. There are others, of course, who were involved in these same issues. They may have a different perspective, but that's okay. This is my story, and I get to tell my story the way I saw it. So, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of other good books out there, and they all have their own perspective. I think mine's a little different in that uh, while some of my observations are the observations of a Hispanic American, of an American citizen, they are also observations of the lawyer. And uh, I don't believe uh, – I know John Ashcroft wrote a book, but his book came out shortly after 9-11. So I'm not sure that he's written a book about other perspectives. So my book is a little different, and I must confess – I struggled with how much to talk about. You know, as a lawyer, you want to protect the conversations you have with clients and things of that nature from time to time. And so that was one of the things that I struggled with is how much to talk about. But in the end, I think I found a good balance. And um, I heard later from uh, President Bush wrote me a very nice note afterwards telling me how much he enjoyed the book. And so I I really felt uh, good receiving that communication from him, knowing that um, he was pleased with the book. Now, the book's title is True Faith and Allegiance. How did you come to that title? What does that express to you? It is part of the oath of office uh, that I took as attorney general to bear true faith and allegiance to the Constitution. And for me, that was vitally important. It's probably, you know, it's obviously important to every official in government, but particularly for the attorney general who's expected by the American people to protect their rights uh, under the Constitution to try to ensure that 
people receive equal treatment under the law and um, for those engaged in wrongdoing that they're held accountable. So, yeah, again, it's simply it's a reflection of part of the oath of office and, and sort of part of I felt that I wanted the book to reflect the fact that I, I felt this was a truthful account, at least as I saw it, of the things that happened. And also, hopefully, to communicate that, you know, we try our best to have allegiance to the Constitution and to the rule of law. As you said earlier, I know that there are some people uh, who disagree with some of the decisions that we made, some of the conclusions that we reached. But I'm hopeful that people will at least come away with the appreciation that we tried. It's not like we we just, you know, flipped a coin and said, this is what we're going to do. So many decisions, we, you know, we spent months agonizing over it, debating it, arguing about it. And we finally had to make a decision at some points, and we did. What advice would you have for the people who will be coming in with the new Trump administration, who are lawyers, who are going to be working for the Department of Justice, working for the Office of Legal Counsel? What do you think they should keep their eye on? What should be their priority coming into the administration? And what do they need to know about what it's like to be a lawyer in Washington for the United States? (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I hope that they enjoy the opportunity that they have, first of all, because it is so special, so unique. And if you work in the White House, for example, if you're an American citizen and you have the opportunity to go to work every day at the White House, to have walk-in privileges into the Oval Office, to advise the president who should he should appoint to the U.S. Supreme Court, I mean, that's a pretty big deal. It was just so rewarding. So. I would say that uh, whatever you do as a lawyer uh, at Justice or the White House or one of the agencies or departments, enjoy the privilege you have to serve the American people. Very, very important. Secondly, you know, as Attorney General, the Attorney General wears two hats, and that is, first of all, he's a member of the President's team. He's a member of the President's cabinet. He has an obligation to promote the President's law enforcement agenda. The President was elected by the people to put in place a certain agenda on law enforcement issues, and the attorney general's job is to help the president achieve that. Too many people lose sight of the fact that the attorney general, you know, is a member of the president's team, for goodness sakes. What makes the attorney general unique is that he or she wears a second hat, which is the chief law enforcement officer of the country. And here's where you want the attorney general to be unbiased and to initiate investigations and prosecutions based upon you know, what the law requires, and to follow the evidence no matter where it might go, even if it goes into the White House. Uh, and I think that's where you want someone strong and someone who can make decisions and has the courage to do what is right. One of the things that I am often uh, in disagreement with others is, what's the appropriate relationship between the attorney general and the president? Is it a good thing to have someone who's close to the president as the attorney general or someone who's totally, you know, has no relationship with the attorney general? My own view is is that um, the president of the United States is more likely to accept bad news or a no from someone that he knows and someone that he trusts. And so I, I believe very strongly that uh, having a good relationship, if you're the attorney general with the president of the United States, is very important in delivering bad news and ensuring that the White House and the rest of the agencies are not doing anything that's inconsistent with the Constitution that's not inconsistent with our laws. President Bush often told me, listen, if you want to be loyal to me, then just do your job. And that was his message for all the cabinet secretaries. You want to show me loyalty? Then do your job. And that's what I tried to do. And that's the message that I would give to the lawyers, the Department of Justice, and others going into the administration. Because Judge Merrick Garland did not receive 
any confirmation hearings from Congress, President Trump will be able to nominate a new justice to the Supreme Court. Now, you've been involved in the process of looking at all the candidates. What are the qualities you think are most important to keep in mind for the team who's trying to select who President Trump should nominate to the Supreme Court? I know that there's a list of names being circulated, and so I'm not asking you to necessarily you know, put your money down on a single person, but what are the qualities you think should be utmost in their consideration process? Sure. Well, that may be driven in part by those who are advising this president, may be driven in part by what the president is looking for. Every president is going to have a sort of a different uh, sort of wish list. I will tell you that in advising President Bush, these are the things that I looked at. The first was qualifications. Is this someone who, by virtue of education and experience, is qualified, I mean, can actually do the function uh, as a judge on the U.S. Supreme Court? Is this someone who the ABA is going to rate qualified or well-qualified? Is this someone that I'm, I would have to be proud to see standing next to the president at a Rose Garden or East uh, Room announcement? So that would be the first thing, qualifications. Next, I would look at characteristics of courage and discipline. Courage, by that I mean, does this person have the courage to undergo the kind of scrutiny, unbelievable scrutiny, that someone gets when they become a Supreme Court nominee. It's tough. Everything about you, everything you've read, everything you've said, everything you've written, it all becomes, it's all going to be examined over and over again. And discipline, I mean, does this person have the discipline to apply a consistent set of judging, not just next year or five years from now, but 15, 20, 25 years from now? And does the person have the courage to withstand the criticism that's going to come from the decisions that you make, which you believe are right, according to your oath of office, but which may be politically unpopular? That takes some courage and guts. So courage and discipline is another thing I would look at. I would look at confirmability. I mean, what seat are we looking at? Is this the Scalia seat? Is a very important swing seat? And so you look at which seat you're trying to fill. You also look at the makeup of the Senate and who is the Judiciary Committee chairman, because uh, the, the chairman will be very, very influential and very, very important in getting that nominee confirmed. So that's important, confirmability. You look at political factors, which um, some people don't really like, but it's, it's true. You know, the president, if he wants a woman, that could be a consideration. If the president wants someone of a certain religion, certain part of the country, um, these are, you know, these, there are political factors that every president, it's important to every president. We look at things like age. We look at things like medical history because we want someone who's going to be there, you know, 20, 30 years. Uh, this is very important for the president's legacy. And then finally, most importantly, I looked at ideology. How does this person approach the job of judging? How are they going to make their decisions? We never ask questions about particular cases, but we ask questions about how they would arrive at certain outcomes, certain decisions. We would ask questions about how would you interpret the Constitution? What's the right way to interpret statutes? You know, when is it appropriate for a Supreme Court justice to ignore precedent? You know, as a Supreme Court justice, you're not bound by precedent, so you can, you can ignore it. When is it appropriate to do so? What factors would you consider in ignoring precedent? What's the value of a signing statement? Is it appropriate to consider foreign law in interpreting our Constitution? A series of questions that I would ask in terms of trying to ascertain the judicial philosophy 
of a particular individual. So those are the things that I would look at in terms of making a recommendation to the President of the United States. Everyone has different factors they would look at, and of course, you need to know what does the president think is important. So I don't know what's important for Donald Trump. I can only speak to what I believe to be important for George W. Bush. Let's talk more about what you're doing today. Right now, you are the dean of Belmont University College of Law in Nashville. How did you come to take this position? And why did you decide to become involved in legal education rather than just continuing to practice law? Well, I brought my son here to Nashville uh, about five years ago, my middle son, Graham, to look at colleges, and I brought him to Belmont, and uh, I didn't even know Belmont was starting a law school. They were on the brink of starting a law school. But anyway, I had a good experience uh, on that college visit. Uh, About two weeks after that, I got an email from the founding dean, Jeff Kinsler, who asked me if I would be interested in teaching here, and I said no. I had no interest in leaving Texas. But we kept communicating, and the offer got better. I then got an offer to work of counsel at a law firm here in Nashville. And my son decided he wanted to come to school here at Belmont. So my wife and I decided that we would take a shot at Nashville. And and so we moved here about five years ago. And for about two years, I, I, I was a faculty member, and I worked at the law firm here in downtown Nashville. And then I was made dean. And uh, I must tell you, we've been very, very happy here. Nashville is a wonderful community. The people here have been very welcoming. Uh, they're friendly, much like Texans. So we feel very much at home. And, um, you know, our law school now has been fully accredited by the ABA. We're doing great. Uh, we've got a you know, great group of students. We've got a great faculty. And truth of the matter is, I like to think that I'm preparing the next generation of leaders. I know, given my experiences, I know how important leadership is. I also know how difficult the challenges are for America, not just domestically, but internationally. And we need good people who have courage and integrity and are willing to step up and and serve when necessary. And so, you know, I like it. And I like being part of that. And I'd like to hope that someday one of our students is going to do something remarkable in the history of our country. And that's a good thing. So that's, that's why I'm here. Well, Judge Gonzalez, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your experiences in your book, True Faith and Allegiance, which is now available for sale. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we end our discussion? It's been a pleasure to be with you. And, uh, you know, I've been very, very privileged. And we live in the greatest country on the face of the earth. And I'm very grateful for the many opportunities that I've been given. Thank you, Judge Gonzalez. This has been the Modern Law Library with your host, Lee Rawls.